ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, coming to you from Gadigal Land. This is ABC News Daily. Australia's in the middle of a severe housing crisis, but did it really need to be this way? If you look to Scandinavia, the answer is no. Today, Dr Cecil Grimster from Griffith Uni on the cooperative housing networks in Denmark, Sweden and Norway that mean barely anyone's left homeless and how they could work here too. Many Australians are really finding it difficult at the moment when it comes to housing. And to understand how we got here into this rather tricky situation, we really need to go back to the end of World War II when there was a real boom in the number of houses that we were building. Just tell me about that time in Australia and what was happening in housing. Well, like in, in most countries after the Second World War, there was a, a big housing boom. And in Australia, the government embarked on huge housing construction schemes throughout all the states, really. In this way, the Commonwealth Reconstruction Training Scheme is helping to solve the gigantic housing problems and build the future for many thousands of ex-servicemen. Yes, a home a man can really call his own. But also, it was also supported through the what we call cooperative building societies, where people would be saving money and then being able to get access to funding to build their own house or or buy houses. Mm-hmm. And these were reasonably priced, so accessible for everybody, really. Mm, there's a huge amount of immigrants, of course, that arrived in Australia after the war. The liner Orion, on her first peacetime voyage, brings a party of British tradesmen to help the Commonwealth rebuilding program. Something like 2 million between 1945 and 1965. So there was a need for a lot more housing, wasn't there? Absolutely. And that's, you know, that makes Australia different to other countries. It was a land of, of plenty and opportunity, so a lot of people came. Since the war, Australia has welcomed nearly a million migrants, of whom half are British. Half have come from other European countries to take their place in the community with So I guess I just want to touch briefly with you then on what happened to that, what happened to all the housing, what happened after those post-war years? Well, um, most of this housing actually became private own housing. The social housing sector um, eventually has kind of become minuscule because mm-hmm. they were sold off. That took them out of the social housing sector. And so uh, the number or the percentage of social housing now is very, very low. I think it's around three of three to four percent in Australia. You know, there's years of waiting list to get into social housing at the moment. Yeah, okay. So we've got a a problem here because we have a lack of social housing now and that changed dramatically in recent years. It wasn't the case, of course, after the war. Now I want to have a look at another approach, an approach that perhaps we could have taken after the war, but we didn't. 
The Scandinavian countries, they went in a different way, didn't they? Let's have a look first at Norway. What happened in Norway after the war in terms of housing? Well, in in all the three, uh, in Norway, Sweden and Denmark, there was a similar huge housing boom uh, after the Second World War because the governments wanted to provide, you know, decent quality housing. But they didn't want to promote private rental. Mm -hmm. They said private rental leaves their tenant very weak. So they opted for what they called housing cooperatives, which is, you can call it a co-ownership. So um, you had developers that would build a big building. The, when the, Once the building was finished, each building was then organized as a cooperative. So the co-op would own the building and then families would then buy a membership and in a way, buy a flat in that co-op. So in a sense, you have a co-ownership between the member owning the flat and the co-op that owns the building. So in a way, it's similar to Strata, but the big difference is that in a co-op, members are very active in decision-making. In Sweden, which is the country that has the largest cooperative housing sector, it's 25 of the housing stock. Uh, In Norway, it's 14%. But uh, for instance, in Oslo, where I'm from, um, housing co-ops comprise 40% of all housing in Oslo, the capital. Gosh, that's a lot. Yeah. And in Denmark, they chose a slightly different model. They said, well, not all people can own a a housing co-op flat or house. So we're going to have a different model where we have housing, rental housing co-ops, which is affordable housing. And that sector is huge in Denmark. It's around 20% of all housing stocks. Mm. And what about the tenants' rights in those co-ops? Because a big problem here, of course, that we have is that, you know, tenants feel like they're not protected enough. Yeah. Well, um, in a housing co-op, and that this is what makes it a unique model and very, very different to private rental, for instance, is that your tenure is secure. You can't be, what should I say, thrown out of a co-op mm. unless, of course, you do something, you know, you don't pay your rent at all or you you do other things that, of course, is, is antisocial. But tenants can um, participate in setting the rent, for instance, if they want to. And this is quite an interesting model, is that part of that rent, a tiny part, goes to a national housing building fund. Mm. And this fund now, because this arrangement has lasted for, you know, decades, this fund is a substantial fund and makes it possible to continue constructing new rental housing co-ops in a way in perpetuity. So, Cecil, what about the co-op houses you actually have to buy? How do they work? So the difference between then a co-op flat that you own is that, first of all, it can't be used as an investment object. You have to live in it. There's also strict regulation around letting it out. You can't really um, let them out and you can't also use them for Airbnb. Mm -hmm. I can see that Norway's largest co-op has more than 500,000 members. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's considered the largest developer in the country. So, yeah, it's really significant. Yes. They sound great. But tell me, Cecil, how are they financed? Because... 
I guess the the point for investors is why do you want to put money into something if you're not going to have a lucrative sort of return? So housing co-ops, they are now so large that they, in a sense, have their own funds. Mm. And because they have their own funds, they can access cheaper finance options. But the big thing here is that in external investors... They look for, uh, what should I say, cheap investment options and not, you know, for maximum profit investors, so to speak. And any surplus they get through their construction is then plowed back into the sector and then so that you can build more housing. So more interested in the public good, I suppose, what's best for everyone. Yes, exactly. Okay, so Cecil, tell me, how has this co-op approach stood the test of time since the end of World War II? I would say it has stood the test of time very well. What I find really interesting is that the security of tenure is so fundamental to creating good, you know, just living conditions and good communities. Mm. We know in Australia more and more people are dependent on private rental because with their rising house prices they go into private rental and we forget how detrimental moving around mm. if you're a family and having to move every six months is is detrimental not only for the person but the whole family yes. and the children's schooling and so on and um, I, I think another element that is really important to know is that the success in a sense of the co-op model is that there's more rights to the tenant. Mm. The tenants are more protected in in the Scandinavian countries. Whereas private rental in Australia, the tenant has so little rights. There are, of course, some co-ops in Australia. Yeah. But do you think, Cecil, that the model from the Nordic nations could work here? And, you know, we could have a much better housing system in this country. Well, we, it's, a, it's a really big question. Yeah. The housing co-op sector that we do have in Australia, which is like less than 1% of the housing stock, is in the social housing sectors. They're quite successful. They've been around for decades, these small housing co-ops. And we would like to see that expand but it needs finance and we need kind of uh, support systems because the big housing co-op sectors in Scandinavia, they have um, peak bodies like we do have some in Australia as well. But the peak bodies are actually very actively supporting the co-op so that they are successful in managing and making decisions. But finding those investors and, and you know, superannuation funds, I think maybe they would be a good place to start. It's a small sector, but it can grow, but it needs also uh, a focus on how to support it to grow and and then become more self-sufficient. People who live in housing co-ops, they feel it's a home and they feel it's their own, which is very different to when you rent privately in Australia. And that is community building in itself. So if it's both affordable and you are actively involved in creating your own living space, I think those are two social benefits that you know we really need more of in Australia. Mm-hmm.
Dr. Cecil Grimster is a senior lecturer at the Centre for Systems Innovation at the Griffith University. If you want to hear more about how Australians are being locked out of the rental market, have a listen to the episode from the 9th of May. That's in your feed. This episode was produced by Flint Duxfield, Veronica Appap and Sam Dunn, who also did the mix. Our supervising producer is Stephen Smiley. I'm Sam Hawley. ABC News Daily will be back again tomorrow. Thanks for listening.